Uh, it's great to be with you. Would you grab your Bibles and open to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. I'd love for you to be able to follow along. This is a, an incredible passage that I would love for you to see uh, with your eyes in black and white. And if you don't have a copy of the Word of God, if you don't have a hard copy of the Scriptures, we would love for you to take that one home with you. We really want everybody to have a hard copy of the Bible, not just on your phone, but uh, one that you can uh, read without your phone there, which can be really helpful sometimes. And so uh, if you don't have one of those, feel free to take that one home. Uh, we would be glad to replace it this week uh, as we dive in together. We're going to uh, start a series that's just going to walk through uh, the, the month of January, basically, maybe a week into February, simply called Back to Basics. And uh, Back to Basics, uh, maybe you've seen this graphic before because a couple years ago we did a series called Back to Basics. Uh, same graphic, same idea. And we want to do that uh, because at the beginning of each year for me, there are certain things that I do as just part of my annual rhythm. There's a, a book that I read at the beginning of each year, same book every year. There's certain rhythms that I do at the beginning of the year that are just kind of part of my January rhythm. And they recenter me. They kind of bring me back into uh, some of kind of the, the consistent ways that I want to live and the way that I want to think. And so for us as a church, I think that can also be a helpful thing for us to come back to some core principles. And so we're going to look at um, some basics, some things that you already know, but we need to kind of come back to and recenter ourselves in as we go into the the year. So, so this morning we're going to look at vision, uh, a vision that will not be new to you, but a vision that will be helpful for us to center on again. We'll look at prayer, we'll look at community and discipleship and mission, uh, the core principles of what it means for us to be followers of Jesus as we go back to the basics. So um, I, I want you to think a little bit about Christmas. I know we're past that. We're into New Year's now. But I want you to think about Christmas because I want to just have a moment of mourning with you. Um, I now have been a licensed driver for a little over 30 years. And again this year, I looked out in my driveway and did not see a Mercedes with a red bow on top of it. I don't, I, that, that happens on t TV all the time. There are all these commercials. I mean, lots and lots of commercials where people are getting cars for Christmas. I don't understand why that never happens to me. But again, this year, that did not happen. So uh, maybe next year. There's always next year. Um, I, I want you to imagine a, a, a special Christmas present. Not quite that special. Imagine if you got for Christmas this year a brand new iPad Pro. Now, some of you are saying, ooh, that'd be great. And some of you are saying, I don't even know what that is. And some of you are saying, I don't like Apple. So whatever, it's fine, it's fine. But just imagine for a second, you got a brand new iPad Pro. And then imagine that the first and only thing you did when you got it was to download a calculator app and every single time you opened it up, that calculator app would pop up, and that's literally all you ever used it for. You had an iPad Pro that is effectively an oversized touchscreen calculator. Now, if that was the case, I, I would not be able to tell you that's not what it's for, because there's an app for that, right? Like, that's, that's literally what it's for, except it, I, I would... I would be able to tell you, you are dramatically underutilizing this piece of technology, right? Like there's so much more it could do than that. You're, you're just doing this one tiny little thing with it. The case I want to make today is that many of us and the church at large is doing that with the gift of Jesus. That Jesus has given us so much more than we ever take advantage of 
Because we speak a gospel to one another that's unnecessarily narrow. A gospel that says something like this. This is probably the gospel that you heard, the gospel maybe you speak to people, the gospel that I heard and that I can often speak to people. It says something like this. Jesus came to be a sacrifice for our sins in our place so that your sin would be forgiven and you would go to heaven when you die. And it's not that that's not true. That is absolutely true. It is fascinating that Jesus talked a lot about the gospel and his work, and he very rarely talked about that. That was very, very low on his list. In fact, he talked about forgiveness a lot and going to heaven when you die almost never. Uh, He did talk a ton about something that he called the kingdom of the heavens, uh, which in the Gospel of Matthew, over 50 times, he spoke to his, his followers that this was an opportunity that we had to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but it wasn't a future kingdom of heaven, like at some point in time when you die, it was actually a present kingdom of heaven that he was talking about, a whole different kind of kingdom. Uh, the, the idea that we would believe simply that Jesus came to forgive our sins so we could go to heaven when we die is very similar to having opened an iPad Pro and used a calculator. It, it's not that it's wrong, it's just that it's not nearly sufficient for what Jesus has done for us. Uh, I want to start the year off right with the Dallas Willard quote. You know you'd be sad if you'd left and I didn't give you a Dallas Willard quote on the first. It's the first of January. So I'm going to start with the Dallas Willard quote. This is actually one that we looked at this fall, and I want to look at it again in a different way. So uh, this is what Willard says. The, the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who, by profession or culture, are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. Now, when we looked at that quote in the fall, we spent a lot of time on the front end of it, talking about how fascinating this idea was that there are people who would call themselves, identify themselves as Christians, who would not be disciples, and how foreign that would be to the early church and to so many throughout history who understood Christian to be disciple. But now I want to look at the back end of the quote, And ask the question, what would it look like to learn from Jesus how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence? What would it look like if we had a vision of the gospel that was that big? Where we could start to see the beauty of Jesus and the work of Jesus going into every area of the world, of all of creation. I want to take you to Colossians chapter 1 because Paul in Colossians 1 makes uh, what I believe to be maybe the the most robust statement of the gospel anywhere in scripture. And and it's this profound and deep and um, multifaceted statement of who Jesus is and what he's doing in us. And most theologians would say he, he spoke this to the Colossians, not because they were in some way disobedient, they were uh, kind of willfully going the wrong direction, as he often did within other letters for people who were willfully going the other direction, but that the Colossians were simply immature. They didn't, they didn't have the fullness of who Jesus was. They, they were using the iPad as a calculator, and, and he was trying to help them to see something broader. 
And so I, I want to read for you a, a section by section, and I want to look at a very familiar vision, a vision that uh, you've heard us talk about if you've been around for a little while uh, over the course of this year many different times. And that vision is three parts, really simple, all of Jesus for the whole person for the whole world. All of Jesus for the whole person for the whole world. What does that look like as it relates to the robust gospel of Jesus. So let me pray for us, and then we'll read together. Jesus, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would guide us, that you would open up our hearts to a way of thinking about you that's maybe broader or different or fuller than many of us are used to. Help us to step into, not just to know with our heads, but step into with our lives, the reality of the gospel of the kingdom. Teach us, Lord. I pray that my words would come from you alone, that the words that come from my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but that the words that come from your spirit would remain, that you would penetrate our hearts and change us, that we would be more like you. And so speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Listen as I read Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, this description that Paul is giving of Jesus. He's going to use the pronoun he, but he's talking specifically about Jesus. He says this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of his cross. We could spend the next six weeks digging into the richness of that text, but I want to just, at a high level, try to bring out some of what Paul was trying to express to the Colossians. First thing he says is, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, if you put yourself as a first century Jewish person who just converted to Christianity, this would be a really weird statement, right? Because uh, the very first thing that you would have read in your copy of the Bible, which we call the Old Testament, one of the very earliest statements that God made was that you and I, men and women, are created in the image of God. So what's it mean that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? I thought I was the image of the invisible God. Well, what, what Paul is trying to say to us is that indeed we are broken images of the invisible God, but Jesus is the consummate image of the invisible God. Maybe a better way to say it is Jesus is an example of the sole example of what God intended with humanity. He's the one that we look to to say this is what God meant when we would bear the image of God. So although we're a broken image bearer, Jesus as a whole or complete image bearer is the supreme example of the image of God. So he says, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now this gets really tricky if you're just going, uh, if you're pulling that line out of context, 
Because it sounds like Jesus was a created being, which was one of the uh, early heresies of the church, that he was first born within creation. But the very next line uh, eliminates that. So he says, it's the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. So he, he's, uh, he's equating Jesus with the creator, but what's it mean that he's the firstborn? Well, the language used is actually the language of uh, like an heir, He's the, the heir of the father. He's the one who would inherit everything of the father. So fascinatingly, in Genesis chapter one, the, the humanity, the, the initial image of God, is given uh, oversight of all of creation. They are to, to fill the earth and we are to fill the earth and to subdue it, which we failed to do because of our brokenness. We failed to do well because of our brokenness. And so what Paul is saying is Jesus is not only the supreme example of humanity, the image of God, he is also the heir of everything that God has done and is doing. That how all, everything that he's created, all that is, everything within the universe, it all belongs to him. And then he goes on to say that he's created all things, um, that everything in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authority, all things were created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. So he's saying, not only did he create everything that is, but he's also sustaining everything that is. So he, he spoke it into existence and he's holding it together all at the same time. Uh, David Garland, who is a New Testament commentator, uh, he says this, Christ has precedence over all things in terms of time and status and is a kind of divine glue or spiritual gravity that holds creation together. God did not simply start things off and then withdrew from his creation. Christ continues to sustain the whole universe. Paul is saying that Jesus is not just a, a perfect example of the image of God. He's not just the one who is the heir of everything that is, but he's created it all and he holds it all together. He's doing all of that work all at the same time. And then he, he goes on to say, that's not just true of all creation, but he says in verse 18, he's the head of the body, the church. Important for us to get at the beginning of the year and at all times, that Jesus is the head of the church and he's not taking resumes, right? He, he's not open to you or I or anybody else stepping in as the head of the church. Jesus alone is the head of the church, and we all serve at his pleasure alone, right? He's in charge. And so he says, not only is he supreme over everything, not only is he holding it all together, sustaining everything, but he is the head of the church, and this body that he's going to use to accomplish his will on earth, his hands and feet, he's responsible for. He is the, the leader of, the head of. If you're going to summarize all of it, you would say there's two things that Paul wants to emphasize that Jesus is. He is supreme over all things, and he is sufficient for all things. Supreme over, meaning there is nothing in all of creation that Jesus doesn't already rule over. It's like, it's, it's done. It's not, a, it's not a question of whether he will or won't or will he eventually. He already rules over, is supreme over all things. All beings, including demonic beings, including the enemy of our soul, all beings operate at his pleasure because he is already supreme over all things. 
It's vitally important for us to get because we have this, this uh, um, old-style Western idea of spiritual warfare. Like there's a white hat riding in on a white horse and there's a black hat riding in on a black horse and we're going to see who wins. There's no battle. The battle is long since over. He is already supreme over all things. And he is sufficient for all things. There is nothing in the universe that is more complex than Jesus can handle. There is no system, there is no structure, there is no problem, there is no, uh, there is no uh, challenge that Jesus can't solve and is sufficient for, which is vitally important for us to get because that means whatever's going on with you, it's easy for him. It's, it's really difficult for us, and it can be really challenging even over a really long period of time, but, but he's sufficient for all things. He can do it immediately. This is a vision of the gospel that's so much bigger than he forgave your sins so that you can go to heaven. It's not less than that. It's so much more than that. He is the image of God. He is creator of everything. He's the heir of everything that is, and he is supreme over and sufficient for all of creation. We could just stop right there, but... Paul doesn't. So keep, keep reading, because he's going to go down in verse 21, and he's going to say something else. You, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have became a minister." So he's not just talking about all of Jesus, but he's talking about all of Jesus for the whole person, for you and for me completely. And what Paul lays out is a, a three-part statement of who we were, who we've become, and how we continue to walk in that path. Do you see it there? So he says, you and I were once alienated and hostile in mind. So he says... It, before you encountered Jesus, so that's either right now because you haven't encountered him yet, or before you did, as you look back before you encountered him, you were alienated, separate from him, um, which, which most of us would say, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Like, I, I was separate from him because I was maybe apathetic towards him, or I didn't, really, I, I didn't really consider Jesus as part of my life, so I was alienated from him. But he says, you weren't just alienated from him. You were actually alienated and hostile in mind. You were actively opposed to him. And now a lot of us would say, hold on. Like, I don't know that I was opposed to him. I mean, I wasn't fighting against him. Well, Paul would say you were. And here's why. All of us, prior to encounter with Jesus, and most of us, regularly after encounter with Jesus, deeply desire to be our own Lord. We like to be in charge. Now imagine a kingdom, a, a literal kingdom, a kingdom where there's a king and there's a, a big parcel of land that he's the king over. Now imagine you have a little plot of land within that big parcel of land and you say to that king and to everybody around, in this land, I'm in charge. Uh, what I say goes, the king can be king over there, but I'm king over here. You know what that's called? Treason. They cut your head off for that in the, in the Middle East, you know, in, the, in the Middle Ages. Like, it's bad. Like, you can't do that. But, so, 
When you and I step in as Lord of our lives, we commit treason against the king. We, we say we're in charge, and we become hostile towards him. And so what Paul, the case that Paul builds is that you and I are opposed to, not just separated from him, alienated from him, apathetic towards him, but actually hostile towards him. And in that state, he says in verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is what theologians call justification. And all that means, that's a big fancy word that means, he has, without you doing anything, stepped in and made you right before God. He's made you holy and blameless and above reproach. Think about that, above reproach. That means within all of the universe, there is no being, no situation that if brought before God against you would stand. There's no, there's no threat, there's, there's no guilty verdict, there, there's no word that someone can say. You are holy and blameless and above reproach. Why? Because he chose to do that. Not because of anything that you did. He, he chose to do that work. So you were alienated and hostile. You are holy and blameless and above reproach, not through anything you did, but if you're reading along and you're remembering, you're thinking, hold on, there's that little word if at the beginning of verse 23. That makes me a little nervous, right? So let, let me read it for you. It says, that's true of you. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So it seems just at the bare reading of the, of the text, that Paul's saying your justification is conditional. It's conditional based on you continuing in your faith. But we know that that's not true because all throughout Paul's writings, he tells us that justification, the work of Jesus, is not based on us. So a real clear example is in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that by, faith, by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's a gift of God that no one can boast. So it's handed to you. Justification is handed to you. So what's he mean then if indeed you continue in the faith? Well, it's this mystery that we look at a lot around here of uh, the work that Jesus does and the work that we're called to do. Uh, another place in Philippians chapter two, Paul says that you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who's doing the work in you. And we're saying, huh? <laughs> like, how's that work? Well, right, it's, it's a mystery. Uh, the, the example that I've tried to use is uh, the example of a catcher behind home plate receiving a pitch. So I'm going to take that analogy, that idea that we position ourselves in a specific place to receive something from God, but we're responsible for positioning ourselves. I'm going to push the analogy a little farther, which is always dangerous, but we're going to try it, see what happens. Um, justification is like you were walking around outside the stadium, you didn't like baseball, you're angry, you're mad that anybody plays baseball, and, and God just picked you up and dropped you behind the plate, said, pitches come and get your glove up. Like, whoa, what just happened, right? But see, if you've ever caught before, 
I'm going to try to do this. You, you, you get down, like, I, I told you I've had a license for 31 years. Just do the math. That's like, so anyway, you're down low. You're getting ready to receive the pitch, right? And after a while, your, your, your thighs get tired. You know, you get thirsty. You need to go to the dugout and get some Gatorade, right? So at some point in time, you move away from that position. And Paul says, if you continue in that position, you're going to continue to receive. So I walk over here, I need to get some Gatorade, but then I need to get back into that position. I need to continue to position myself in order to receive. Now listen, when I go get a drink in the dugout, God's not mad at me that a pitch went past, but I didn't receive it. So see, there's something that I'm missing because I'm not positioned, and it doesn't have anything to do with whether I'm allowed to be a catcher or not. I'm still allowed to be a catcher. I can go back in at any moment. If you continue, you will continue to receive, you will continue to grow, you will continue to develop. There's this, uh, this line that we're called to walk, which is the core of what it means to be an apprentice or a follower of Jesus. We talk about it in three actions, you've probably heard them before, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do the things that Jesus did. We are called into it, and yet he's the one that does it. So if you picture like a balance beam, there are two sides that we can fall off. We're walking the beam, and one of those sides is that Jesus is doing all the work. He's doing everything. So I say, I'm just going to walk, and if Jesus wants to change me, he can change me. I'm not doing any work. He, he can do the work. The problem with that is just purely logical. So imagine if I came to you and I said... I have determined, it's January 1st, 2023, I've determined I am not going to sin anymore this year. I'm done. <laughs> you do that. Or you would think he plans to die this afternoon because those are the only two choices, right? Like, that's it. So if I say that, you'd look at me kind of crazy. But imagine if I came to you and I said, I've decided that for 2023, I'm going to sin as much as I want unless Jesus tells me not to. What would you say? you can't be the pastor here anymore, right? <laughs> yeah, something like that, right? But there's only those two options. Do, do you get that there's, there's not an in-between? We have this idea that I'm just gonna sin a little bit and that'll be okay. Because we have the image of sin, uh, kind of like water going into a bucket, a few drops are not a big deal, it won't overflow. But sin biblically is not like that. Sin is a lot closer to a needle and a balloon. You, you, you don't get just a little poke, right? You don't just, I'm going to poke it over here and poke it over here, but that's it, and then I'll leave it alone. No, one poke and that's it. I'm either intending to sin or I'm intending not to sin. It doesn't mean I'm perfect, but it does mean that I'm choosing to arrange my life the way that Jesus as Lord would call me to arrange my life. Jamie Smith, in his book, You Are What You Love, which is an excellent uh, kind of primer on the way that whole life transformation works, he, he says it this way. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and our longings with him, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God, and crave a world where he is all in all, a vision encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God. This means that discipleship is more a matter of reformation than of inquiring information. 
Let me just unpack that last sentence. Discipleship is more a matter of reformation than of acquiring information. What he's saying is, our discipleship is not about, I'm going to learn more, learn more, learn more, and once I learn enough, I'll stop sinning. Our discipleship is about me entering in with my will and my intention to live the way of Jesus so that my habits and my desires and my loves start to be shaped around his habits and desires and loves, around the kingdom of God. However, the other side of the balance beam is also a problem. So we're called to not say, Jesus is going to do all the work, but if we start to walk and we say, I got this, this is my job, it's now my responsibility to be holy, we will find ourselves very quickly wearing out and no longer experiencing the presence of Jesus. Throughout the entirety of the New Testament, whole life transformation is the work of God partnered with my work and my effort. There's always the work of Jesus doing the work of transformation. The only work I can do is to modify my behavior. I cannot change my heart. And until Jesus does the work in an ongoing way of changing my heart, all I will do is have different behavior. Mark Sayers in his book, Reappearing Church, uh, says it this way, and I think it probably rings true for many of us. Striving in our strength to get his work done soon becomes living too busy to engage with his presence. We're not doing bad stuff. In fact, great stuff. More ministry, more programs, more education, more mission, more justice, more social media promotion of his work. Yet soon, chasing our God-given purposes without the power of his presence, our churches, our our services, and our lives are packed full. We may still be theologically orthodox, but running on empty like the church that rightly holds to his orthodox theological creeds but is slowly drained of spiritual vitality, or the believer who mentally assents to correct biblical belief but whose heart is not transformed. What Sayers is saying, and and I know it's dense in the way that he says it, but what he's saying is that apart from the spirit of Jesus doing the work of Jesus, we will wear out. We will fill our lives, and it will look good for a while, but it will be dry and mundane, and ultimately we will give it up because the Spirit of God isn't animating it. We must be filled with the Spirit so that the work of Jesus is consistently being done through us. The way that Paul says it in the book of Galatians is that I am not, I'm not alive anymore, but I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live but Christ now lives in me. And the way he says it is, the life that I live in the body, the work that I'm doing, is now being lived with Christ, doing his life, living his life through me. So I'm still doing stuff, that's one side of the balance beam, but I'm doing it through his power, the other side of the balance beam, so that I would be conformed more and more to his image, transformed from the inside out. All of Jesus, this beautiful, broad vision of who Jesus is for the whole person, not just forgiving my sin, not just preparing me for heaven, but transforming me from the inside out. That by itself would also be beautiful. But still, that's not the way Paul left it. Let me read one more verse for you. This is actually back in verse 20, if you're following along. 
Um, let me read, starting in verse 19, just to give you the flow. Paul says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven and on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is not just all of Jesus for the whole person, but he's also actively right now reconciling all things back to himself. This is Jesus for the whole person, for the whole world, for all things. Now you say like, where's the edge of that? Like where's the edge of all things? All things, like systems and people and all of creation, the broken world that we live in, all things. Jesus is in the process of reconciling all things back to himself and the vehicle with which he's doing it are you and I. We're the way that he's working in the world. Um, that, that idea of all things, uh, there's a verse, if you just turn a couple pages back to Ephesians chapter 1, the very last phrase of Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read the sentence for you just because it will make more sense. Um, but in verses 22 and 23 of Ephesians 1, there's a statement, and it becomes very churchy to us, and so we don't, uh, we, we don't get a hold of it because it's, it's a very churchy kind of statement, but he, he says this, um, and he, this is God the Father, put all things under his feet, that's Jesus, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, listen to this phrase, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now that idea of all in all is one of those, uh, like, read it, it makes sense, like, kind of, but I don't really get a picture of what it says. Uh, a fair way to translate that would be that the glory of Jesus would fill every nook and cranny of all of creation, like every single place. Like all the dark places would be lit up by Jesus' glory. All of the broken people would be made whole. All of the broken systems would be restored. All of the acts of injustice would be made just, and justice would, as the, uh, as the scriptures say, roll down like the rivers. It would all be done because every nook and cranny would be filled with the glory of God. David Garland, again, the New Testament scholar, says this, the church does not exist to meet the needs of its members or to ensure its institutional survival, but to fulfill the redemptive purposes of Christ, its head. It should therefore reflect the image of the divinely ordered cosmos. The church should reflect the image of God and the way that God is working in the world around us. Say it a different way. We, empowered by the Spirit, should be bringing the glory of God into every nook and cranny in the world around us. We're called to be those people because, now get this, get your head around this, because Jesus is already working in all of those areas. So you're going to go to work this week, you're going to be a part of your neighborhood this week. You're going to go to school. You're going to be part of some activity. You're going to interact with people. And Jesus is already working in all of those areas. And you know that because of Colossians 1, 19 and 20. He's already in the process of reconciling all things to himself. Now, it may take way longer than you think. It may go a different path than you think. But you can be assured that when you step into the work of God in the world, you're working alongside of him because he is sending you out with his power 
into all of the darkness of the world around us. Now, the church has always struggled with this because uh, the idea of the darkness kind of pushes us backwards, right? Like, we're, we don't really believe that the power of the Spirit goes with us. When Jesus sent out his disciples right before he ascended, remember the last thing he said? Surely I am with you always to the end of the age. No matter where you go, I'm with you. I'm coming with you. But see, we have this idea that the, the Spirit of God is um, in a more powerful, more effective way with us now than when we leave from here. And, and let me just lovingly and gently say, like, that's not true, biblically. Like, it is true that we're two or three are gathered, he's among us. It is true that God's enthroned on the praises of his people, that his presence is with us as we gather, that we should both long for that and expect that. But if I say it this way, it makes much more logical and theological sense no matter how strongly manifest the presence of Jesus is with you right now, when you leave, you don't take one two hundredth of that spirit, right? You take all of that spirit. It doesn't even make any logical sense that it would be distilled among us so that when we go out from here, we have just little bits of the spirit. No, we don't. We have all of the spirit with us. And so that means that as you and I go into creation, we go with all of him, And where the church does not believe that, the church will always huddle together and fail to penetrate the darkness because we feel that we need more light. But God calls us out into the darkness. So what's that mean practically? Let me just give you a few examples. First one is this. We have to get past the idea that the church gathering whether in the sanctuary or in your living room or whenever the people of God are gathered together, that the church gathering is the only place people can encounter God. And here's why. Increasingly, we are going to be living in a world where there will be people who simply will not go with you to church. It doesn't matter how compelling you are. It doesn't matter how nice you are. It doesn't matter how much they're interested in who Jesus is. It doesn't matter. They've been burnt and they're not going. And they're not coming here. It doesn't matter how great this is. They're not coming here. And so if we can't get to a place where the presence of Jesus is manifested in us wherever we are, we trust that and we live that, there's going to be huge swaths of people, an increasing number of people who are never going to experience him. Because we have to take him there. We can't simply bring them here. Now here in your county, there's still a lot of people who will come here. And that's beautiful, and that leads to the second thing. And that is that we can't simply bring the gospel to cleaned up people who look like they're ready. My my favorite thing, I get this so often, dozens of times every year, my favorite thing is when I'm in a conversation with somebody and they're telling me about their friend who doesn't know Jesus, and they say, man, like if they would come to faith, God could do some really amazing stuff with him. And I I always think inside, Because the God who is all in all and has all power to do all things at all times, supreme and sufficient, needs your friend's talent. Like, he definitely does. I can tell. Like, definitely needs your friend's resources. Definitely needs your friend. Like, it doesn't even make any sense, right? Like, the God of the universe who has everything doesn't need somebody specific because they've got what it takes. When we limit the grace of God to people who look like they have their lives put together, which is look like their lives are put together. Um, We we limit the effectiveness of the gospel because what we know for sure, what I know for sure, is that 
God is doing work only in broken people. You know how I know that? Because of you. Because of me. Because <laughs> we're broken and messed up people. And that's the only way God works. I know some of you look like you have it all together. But here's what happens. When you're broken and messed up, one of two things happen. Either you know you're broken and messed up, and so Sunday morning rolls around, and you get dressed nice, and you clean yourself up, and you come to church pretending like you're not broken and messed up, and, and then you look good even though you actually are, or you're so broken and messed up that you get up in the morning and you think, I just can't do it today, so you're watching online. Just kidding, I love you. I'm sure that's not it. But I, <laughs> or, or, or you're just not watching at all, right? You're just, <laughs> I just had to poke fun of the people at home. Anyway, um, so, but, but we don't show up. And so what happens? The people who show up are the people who look like they have their lives all put together. And then broken people walk in because, by the way, those are the only kind of people who can walk in right? It's only broken people. And broken people walk in and they look around and they're like, huh, my people ain't here. Like, only good looking people here. My people, my broken people, I don't know where they are. Which is why we have to allow ourselves to be real with each other. To admit that we're broken. And we might look like we have it all together, but it's just clothes. It's just a show. It's just the outward stuff. The gospel of Jesus means broken people need to be invited. And the last thing I want to say, because you as broken people, me as a broken person, are the carriers of this gospel, your personality is the right personality for the way that God wants to reach the world around you. Your personality. And some of you are like, no, you don't know me. Because we have this idea that if I was just more extroverted, extroverted people are way better at sharing the gospel. Like, if I could just talk better, if I, if I could just listen more, because the extroverted people want to listen more, right? If I, if I could just listen more, that would be so much better. If I was smarter, I could answer questions. If I was cooler, I would fit in a little bit better. If I was, if I was just more relaxed, I, would, I, I wouldn't be so tense when I'm having these conversations. And we have this idea that if we were like somebody else, we would be better. But let me tell you a secret. The people who talk really well, they all wish they talked less. And the people who listen really well, they all wish they could talk a little bit more. It's almost like we have an enemy who's trying to tell us we're not sufficient. You're enough. You know how I know you're enough? Because we all are part of the work of reconciliation that God's doing in the world around us, all of us. He needs all of us because he's chosen to need all of us to redeem you, to redeem me, and then make us part of his work of reconciliation. And so as we look at 2023, I want us to be people who aren't willing to just use the iPad as a calculator, but to say the whole of Jesus, the breadth of Jesus, he's changing everything. He has already and is continuing to change everything, and he's inviting me into it. He's working in the world around me, and he's inviting me into that work. He's changing me from the inside out, and I get to be a part of that process. This isn't just forgiveness of sin and wait for heaven, which, by the way, at some point in the next couple of years, we're going to do a series on heaven, and some of you are going to have your minds blown when you see what the Bible actually says. Um, uh, just a little quick footnote, 
there are no chubby angels with harps in diapers on uh, clouds because I know but that would be like hell to me. That would not be like heaven to me. That's a whole different thing. And so that's not, that's not the way it's going to be. It's going to be very different than that. But we're not just waiting for that. We're in that. That's, the, that's what's incredible. Like you've been invited into the kingdom of heaven right now. And so rather than just believing that my sins have been forgiven and I wait, the gospel says, no, enter in fully now. And so I want to ask us as we go into this year, to consider what it looks like for us to enter into that reality. So if you have a Bible or a notebook or whatever, if you just wanna kinda of set that over to the side, I just wanna take a minute and just rest and allow the Spirit of God to speak. There's a lot of words that I've spoken and there may be a few of them that have resonated. There may be something entirely different that the Spirit of God is saying to you. I just wanna ask that the Spirit would speak and that we would be people who would listen. So we just settle your hearts. Maybe just take a real deep breath in and breathe out. And just ask the Holy Spirit to speak. Spirit, would you say to our hearts what we need to hear? as we enter into this new year. senses there's some of us who immediately know where he's calling us, what he's asking us to do, how, how we step into the work that he's doing. It's immediate. We know right in our head this is, what, this is where he's working. And so if that's where you are, I just want to pray over you that beautiful balance of your effort and the Spirit's work that he would empower you, and that you would be brave, courageous, that you would step forward. And so if that's where you're at, I'm just going to invite you. If you just know, you know exactly where he's calling you. Just put your, heart, put your hands out and receive, and let me just pray grace over you. Jesus, there's some of us that know exactly where we need to go, how we need to step forward. And so I pray by your spirit that you would give us courage to step forward, and that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would receive the empowering and the strength that we need, that we would not just do stuff to be busy, but that we would be animated by your work. And so God, on my brothers and sisters, as we receive that, God, would you uh, just pour out your spirit on us, I pray in Jesus' name. There's some others who I think come either completely hopeless or right on the edge of it. Just a lot of brokenness. Kind of a, a, either a, a real sense of, man, these, these things are impossible. These situations are impossible. Or, or at the very least, that sense that it feels impossible to me. 
I don't, I don't know how I'd get there. And if that's where you are, I just want to pray that the grace of Jesus would meet you in the midst of that hopelessness and that you would find hope in him. That your hope would not be in the, a, a solution or in things working out the way that you think they should because they'll probably go a totally different way. But your hope in him, the one who is sufficient and supreme, who is able to do all things. So if that's where you are, you feel you're on this sense of hopelessness, you're on the edge of it, you just feel like, oh man, that all sounds great, but it's not where my life is right now. Just maybe put your hands out if you're able to do that and receive as I pray over you. Jesus, I pray for brothers and sisters here who feel like they're just on the edge, like nothing is working the way that it should be, that it's not going right, and they just, they're struggling. They're struggling with a specific situation or uh, something that is just bigger than them, and they feel it, and they feel that sense of desperation. Would you come by your Spirit and draw close? And would you give them the grace to put their hope in you, not in the solution, not in... Uh, the way that you're going to work, but in you, so they can trust that you are enough. And so God, draw close to their hearts. Bring them comfort and peace. Help them to pull their heads out above the water to be able to breathe. Give them the peace to rest in you. Pray in Jesus' name. There's one other group I want to pray for. Um, I think there's some of us, as we go into the new year, that are well aware of the patterns of our life that trip us up, sinful patterns, brokenness, ways that um, we've said over and over again we're not going that way anymore, but we go back that way again. And this is just a day. Yesterday was 2022, today's 2023, it's just another day. But it is a moment for us to say, Jesus, would you interrupt the cycle? We could do that next week. We could do that next month. But today's a day to do that. And so I want to pray, if you're in that position where you just feel like your, your life is in a cycle, maybe it's a sinful cycle or maybe it's just a, a pattern that you, you know God needs to interrupt. It needs to be different. I'm going to pray that over you as well. If, you would just, if you're able to, courageous enough to just put your hands out. Let me pray that over you. Jesus, in the midst of the cycles of our sin and our lives and our brokenness and our need for grace, we can so easily get stuck. And I pray for my brothers and sisters that this morning would be like a boost from the Spirit out of the rut, that you would move us. Maybe there's a confession that needs to happen. Maybe there's movement that needs to happen. Maybe there's intentional steps that need to be taken. Whatever that is, God, would you give us the grace to step into that? Would you come to my brothers and sisters and uh, give us the grace maybe to speak to someone else, to not bear this burden alone, but to move out of that rut? And as we step into 2023, that we would have a real sense of a new year, a new beginning that we're stepping into. And so Jesus, 
these three situations that immediately came to my spirit and maybe many, many more. We pray that through your grace, you would do work. God, help us to step into the vision that you have for us, that we would be people who are transformed by your love and together build communities where other people can encounter your love as well. So Jesus, we thank you for the work that you are doing and will continue to do. It's in your name we pray. Amen.